All right, if you have a Bible right now, I want you to open up to the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Am I loud? Yes, I thought I sounded loud too. So now I sound quiet. Okay, so... Perfect. Open up to the book of Acts chapter 19. And as you are on your way to that section of the Bible, I want to open up with a very foundational premise that will drive everything that we are doing this morning and for the next series of months. And the premise is very simple. I believe the Bible says... That God, Father God, on a throne, in heaven, all glorious, all ruling, that God is a missionary God. That His ambition is to be on mission, on a missional endeavor. So passionate is this mission of God that He takes His one and only Son and He sends Him on mission into a foreign land, this planet. A land that is hostile, anti-God, does its own thing, makes its own rules, seeks its own glory. He says, I want to reclaim that. And so as a missionary God, I send my son as the great missionary. And he will go and he will do and he will achieve things that humanity cannot do. And as he returns to me, we will send another missionary, which is the Holy Spirit, to empower those reached by my mission. See, that's the whole picture we're looking at. And so when we think about just that aspect of Jesus coming to the world as a missionary, I think often as you sit there in the room, you think, well, the big idea behind Jesus coming was that Jesus would come and die on the cross. That that was his goal. I want to challenge that notion that the cross was his goal. I don't want to challenge the cross. I love the cross. The blood of Christ on the cross saves and saves alone. I love the cross. I'm not trying to dismantle the cross at all. But what I'm saying is when Jesus came into the world, the cross wasn't the goal. The cross was a tool. The cross was a means to a goal. And the goal... The real intent of the cross is right here. Everybody sitting in this room, everybody sitting down at Carnation Bible right now, everybody that's down at Adventure Church, everybody that is sitting at Mars Hill, everybody that is in any church, anywhere in the world was the goal of the cross. The church was the goal. The mission that Jesus sought to establish and achieve in his life, his death, and his resurrection was this institution, this establishment, this body, the church. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, right? The blockhead, the rock. And he says, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I love this verse. I quote it often for two reasons. First is this. It's a purpose statement. Right? Jesus has a purpose statement. I came into this world sent by my father to build the church. The other thing aside from purpose is design. We are designed, ready, to be hell crashers. I love that. That shows that we have mission. As Jesus came into the world on mission, as Jesus died on the cross to dethrone Satan and empower his church, the purpose being that the church would be a hell crasher of the kingdom. 
That is what I want to contend for earnestly this morning. So that we get that the church is the big idea of God. That we understand the church is the weapon, the big crasher of hell, that it engages in clash every single day, every single place. That we understand that in this room, room, we are the representation of the church, the ambassadors of the one thing that changes everything. One thing. As we're going to see this morning, it is that one thing that literally can transform an entire city if we contend for the one thing. In fact, I would push on us to say, we need to own that the most important thing in this world is not the preservation of our culture. The most important thing in this world is not financial stability. The most important thing in this world is not national security. The most important thing in this world is not even global peace engineered through human means. The most important thing in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ carried by the church of Jesus Christ. We need to own that because you know what? Sometimes I find in my own life, I don't own that as much as I should, right? I start thinking other things are more important. I get more passionate about other things. I get more focused on other things. I want to drive toward other things more. In that sense, I, I don't even have a sense of, of, of real long-term vision because the truth of the Bible is that in a thousand years, if Jesus does not return and this world is still spinning, in 1,000 years, you know, there's a lot of things we hold dear that will not exist anymore. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, carried by the messenger of his church, will endure. The one thing that will continue is the church a thousand years from now. I know this is going to break your heart. There's not going to be a Starbucks. I'm telling you. Right? There's not going to be. And there's not going to be things like the Red Cross and World Vision. There's not going to be Netflix. There's not going to be anything. But the church will endure. And the reason the church endures is because of this great truth. Ephesians chapter 1 that we just read this morning. It says, In God placed all things under His feet, that is Christ, and appointed Him to be the head over everything for the church. Christ is the ruler of the universe. He has all authority. Why? For His church. His church matters. Why? Because it is His body. It is the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. See, I make a big deal about this. I'm going to drive this often throughout uh, our series because I, I think too often we reduce the essence of the church to, uh, well, when I'm looking for a new one, I have to shop for it. So I'm church shopping, you know. Does this one fit my flavor? Does that one fit my tone? Do I like that guy's style? Do I not like that guy's style? We sort of reduce it down to a consumer product. And I'm not saying there isn't a time and a place for people to look around for a church and try to assess where they want God to have them go. That is awesome. But I think it's almost seen as like a product. And then from that, it's a place I go to and I leave as opposed to it is a truth that I am. 
I know even it's popular in evangelical circles to mock the church and talk about how it's failed and it's blown it. And I think there's a time and a place for assessment. Judgment begins at the house of God, Peter says. But I think when we just start treating it like this thing that gathers on Sunday and that's all the church is, we've missed the full thrust of the cross. That Jesus wanted to create something that will change the world. That's the heart of the cross. That is the heart of the church. It is the glorious proclamation of all that Jesus is and does. That is all of us. That is what we are to celebrate. That is what we are to hold dear. And what we have to own is that we are a church born in, planted in the context of hostile territory. Right? If we're in this world as a light in darkness, as a beacon on a hill, that instantly means we are in hostile territory. And we need to start owning that mindset that this isn't about my comfort, my ease, my happiness, my spiritual fulfillment, but really go, whoa, wait a minute. I am now a soldier commissioned by Christ for great things for His glory. And so I am engaged by default in a clash. The church is born into a clash. The church operates in the context of a clash between darkness and light, between selfishness and holiness, fundamentally between God and all that stands opposed to God. Truth versus error, that is the clash. And as we engage in this clash, the more we live for Christ, the more you as an individual lives for Christ, the more hell viciously responds. See, when we just kind of fly below radar and we're just doing our own thing and living our own life and Jesus is a part of my life but he doesn't rule all of my life, you know what, there's no threat there. There's not, nothing that Satan goes, man, i got to go after that. He goes, no, that's perfect. Like, like, play on the team but stay on the bench. Don't get in the game. That changes the score. But if you say you're on the team and you wear the jersey that says Jesus, as long as you're on the bench, that's good. I'm cool with that. I don't care if you play on the team as long as you don't actually play on the team. But if we really start to play and we go out on the field of life and we engage in the clash and we live righteously, boldly, clearly for Jesus, oh man, hell is vicious. It's vicious. It fights, it tears, it claws, it wants to destroy. And so we all the more must engage. Must engage. And I think sometimes when I talk about this, or when we hear people talk about it, it's tough for us to wrap our arms around. It's almost like I find that we do better with example. We do better with story. To understand how we do this, how we live, what sets us apart. And so I want us to look at what I think is probably the most amazing example of a group of people, a church, that really lived in the context of the clash. A church that, that, that spanned a long period of time, roughly 60 years. I want us to look at a church that spanned a 60-year time period. And in that time, came to Christ, grew in Christ, failed on some things, succeeded on other things, failed again, was spanked for it, got right. I mean, all that stuff that happens in the life of a church. I want us to look at that example. And that example is the church of Ephesus. In fact, literally, for most of 2013, we're just going to be looking at the church of Ephesus. And you might go, oh, great. 
that slow, are we? Well, no. We're going to be looking at some of the book of Acts, all of Ephesians, all of 1 Timothy, all of 2 Timothy, potentially 2 and 3 John, and a little bit of Revelation, because those are all things written to the church of Ephesus. Right? I don't know if you realize that, but it's the most prolific church in the New Testament. Right? More things are written to Ephesus than any other church. More things were founded at Ephesus than you may ever even realize. And so we can look at them and go, oh, this is how they did it. This is how they responded. This is how Paul coached them. This is how they infiltrated their city. This is how God used them for his glory. We can learn from their life. And so I love that. And I love how even the story opens, something that we may not really realize. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not in the book of Ephesians yet. But every time I look at that, I go, that is an interesting opening if you lived in Paul's day. Because if you were in that context and you understood that culture, it would be a little bit like if we wrote a letter today and, and, or somebody, you know, wrote it from our church to a group and we read it to you so you knew what it was about. And the letter opens to the Christians who work at Al Jazeera, faithful in Christ Jesus. To the Christians who are employed at MTV in Christ Jesus. To the Christians who work on the Vegas Strip. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Right? It would be that place. Ephesus would be that place where you would say, how can there be any saints there? Who could even be a Christian in that environment? Much less thrive. Who could be a Christian in that environment and bring any level of change? Because that place is Christless to the Christians who work at Apple in Christ. I mean, like that. Right? I know my audience, all right? It's like that. Take that place you assume is not saturated by Christ. And that is who Paul writes to. Those who are saints. Those who are set apart in Christ Jesus. In Ephesus. See, Ephesus was a crazy, crazy place. You go way back in history to its founding. Right? And this is myth. A lot of things we have to kind of deal with is in the realm of myth. But the myth according to the Greeks, is that Ephesus was found by a group of Amazon topless warrior women. That's a weird story. Like, is that what you tell at the dinner table? So mom and dad, how was our city established? Well, there's these topless warrior Amazon women. You know, like, but that's how the myth exists, right? So founded by warrior princesses, Xena for Ephesus, right? That's how they're founded. And then as time goes on, Ionian like tradesmen step in at about 1100 BC and they kind of establish it as like this little colony of trade because there's a harbor and a river and they think this is a good place to kind of set up shop. And early on, Ephesus developed kind of this independent mindset and spirit. In fact, they're one of the few cities during the Peloponnesian Wars that they said, we side with Sparta, right? So they're with the 300. Not always a good choice, but that's who they went with. And so that's kind of this spirit. And because of that, over the years, Ephesus went through all sorts of change. Different rulers, different leaders, different systems. And from that developed kind of this pluralistic mindset. They just learned over the course of time, you just have to kind of absorb everything, change with the times, make it fit to make society go well. And so that goes on for like a 
thousand years. And then you get to the time of Paul. No, Ephesus is controlled by uh, the Roman government. It's a Roman city, but it has what's called a status of being free, which means it can still kind of make a lot of its own decisions. And that gives gives it tremendous power. At the time of Paul, it is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's huge. It is the number one wealthiest city, more wealthy than Rome. Because it has all this free trade and all of this opportunity to amass wealth and disperse wealth at its beck and call. So that's what it does. It is the capital city of Asia Minor. In fact, if you were to travel anywhere in Asia Minor, you would come across road markers. It didn't matter where you were. And it would say, you're this far from Ephesus. It was the center. It was the hub. It was everything. It had education. It had libraries. It had sports. It had competition. It had the arts. It had theater. It had politics. It had statesmen. It had it all. And you could look at that and say, man, what a great city. What a beacon of human ingenuity and power. And I would say, you're right. But it was also dark and depraved and broken. In fact, if your ship was to come into the Ephesian harbor and you were to dock and get off the boat and walk up the main walkway away from the harbor, there was a big chiseled sign that basically said this, prostitutes that way, if you're selling slaves that way, and if you want to worship all the gods, go that way. That's it. So you get off the boat and you're like, hmm, good time, buy stuff, sell stuff, or worship other gods. That's the city. That's the essence. That's its billboard walking in the door. Right? Just a broken, dark place. And at the epicenter of this entire city was this temple. I think we have a picture of the temple here. This is the temple of Artemis or Diana, right? And on the other side, you see Artemis or Diana. This is the idol that they worship. Allegedly, she fell from the sky. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks in the book of Acts. She fell from the sky, maybe a meteorite or whatever. And so they crafted from this Artemis. And she's the patron goddess of the city. She is the one who guards them and protects them and heals them and brings all the supernatural powers to bear on their city. The city had 50 different gods and goddesses, but this is the number one goddess. This is the one that the whole city said, you know what? We are bound to her and she to us. It is a covenantal relationship. She is our God. She looks after us as we look after her. We are patriotic when it comes to her. Our monetary system is rooted in her. All of our values and ethics flow from her. This is their God. So when Paul walks into the city, this is really what he's dealing with. Now, when you look at the goddess Artemis, for a lot of years, people thought that all those things that look obscene were breasts. Um, Actually, in recent studies, they've really come to the conclusion that those aren't breasts, but these are little satchels where you would pluck these from Artemis and they're filled with like magical incantations and powers and trinkets designed to basically unleash the occult, right? So it's not so much like, wow, she's perverse. No, she's magical. She's, okay, here's Ephesus, it's Hogwarts. That's all it is. All right. So right. It's this city rooted in the occult, rooted in magic, rooted in the demonic, Which means if Paul's coming in with the light of the gospel and it is a city rooted in darkness, you're going to have a clash. 
Because anytime the gospel invades, there's a clash. And this is going to be powerful. That temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's huge. It's glorious. It's, it's twice the size of the Lincoln Monument. It is a beacon of darkness. But Paul is on the move. The gospel is on the move. Jesus is on the move. Now again, this is not going to be an easy prospect. It's going to be really hard. Even at this temple, here's the weird thing about the temple of Artemis. It was also an asylum for criminals, which means if you killed somebody, they were coming after you. But if you could get to the temple, they couldn't touch you. It's like in kid, when you were in grade school, remember? I'm on base, oh, I'm on base, right? Like that. That was their base. So you have organized crime. Loves this place. This place is awesome. We're free here. So you have the occult. You have crime. You have slave trade. Number one slave trading city in the whole known world. You have all of that going on. Rampant prostitution. You name it. It's to this city of about 250,000 that we see in Acts 19.1 that it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So you got to have all that background to know what he's getting into. Was he, as he does this third and final missionary journey, he looks at the city. And in his mind, there's only one thing. And I go, man, I wish I had this intensity and focus like Paul does. It's my prayer. But Paul looks at this city that's debaucherous and depraved and broken and huge. It's huge, man. That is a giant city. And he looks and he says, I'm claiming it for Christ. Well, you and what army? Me. But I got Jesus. I've got his gospel. I've got the Holy Spirit. And I'm claiming a city. This is what I love about Paul. And I go, man, how, how would you even start? It would be a little bit like flying into Vegas, right? Planes coming in. You're looking at all the houses. You're looking at all the pools. Going, wow, those people got a lot of pools. You know, like you're looking and then you land. It would be like, now where do I go? How do I start? I'm claiming Vegas for Jesus. Well, what Paul does is pretty brilliant. He looks for people of like-mindedness. Right? Let's see if I can kind of find that first and maybe we can go from there. So in Acts 19, verse 1, the second half, it says, There he found some disciples. And I look at that and I go, sweet, man. So who knows, maybe it was people who got saved in Jerusalem or in Antioch and they had relocated to Ephesus. And so he's like, awesome, I've already got some building blocks right here for a church. We can all gather together, start sipping coffee, talking Jesus, establish a church. But as he's hanging out with these guys, he starts to realize, like, man, something's not right. I can't put my finger on it, but every time we do a Bible study, they call it Job and not Job. They don't know something, right? I can't figure it out. They all, all I want bacon, and all, all they want to eat is wild locusts and honey. I don't, what's their problem? So he says to them in verse 2, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. It's a bad answer if you're claiming to be a disciple. And he said, into whose baptism were you baptized? And they said, we were baptized into John's baptism. That's where he goes, ah, no wonder the camel's hair tunic. All right, I got it. Now, like, you guys are followers of the front runner to Christ. So remember John the Baptist rolled in before Jesus and he preached, repent. He says, get right with God because there's one coming after me who's far mightier than I am. And he is going to unleash the Holy Spirit with fire. 
And, and they may have heard some bits and parts of John's message. Maybe it was secondhand. And so they said, man, we like that message. We're baptized into that doctrine and philosophy. But they didn't have the whole deal. So they're confessing what they know, but they haven't been converted by the power of God and his spirit. Right? That hasn't happened yet. So they go, no, we haven't heard about that. So they like the ideas, but they haven't had life transformation, spirit indwelling. And so, verse 4. So as Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was coming after him. And that is Jesus. It says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So here's what's it's cool about this. The Christian experience is always rooted in the same things. Repentance, faith. From faith, you say, I identify with Jesus, that's baptism. And then in that, you also have the Holy Spirit come upon you. And the reason that happens is because Jesus has left us here in this world, right? He's left us here on mission for a purpose. That's why when you get saved, you don't get instantly raptured, man. It's not like you shoot out of here. You stay because you're on mission to preach the gospel to the world because you are a gate crasher. And the way you crash gate in the Christian life is being filled with the Spirit. The way the church is mobilized and strengthened is through the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that gifts us, unifies us, empowers us, helps us overcome, develops the fruit of the Spirit. He is the energizer. And so these guys could have all the best intention in the world, but without the Holy Spirit, they don't have anything. So the Spirit rushes upon them, and what happens? They start saying, Bada Honda, Shuddha Bada Yamaha, right? They start speaking in tongues. And they start prophesying. And people look at this and go, well, is that what's supposed to happen to everybody that gets saved? No! That's, you know, there's some people say, ah, oh, if you don't speak in tongues, you, you're, you don't really have the Holy Spirit. That's where you quickly go, bada Honda, shit, bada Yamaha, does that count? You know, like, you don't need that. Here, here's what you need. You just need the Holy Spirit. What happens here is very special. In fact, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my disciples to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Chapter 1. Then chapter 2, the Spirit rushes on the church. Pentecost. And at Pentecost, the gospel goes to the Jews. So, you will have power and you will proclaim the gospel first to the Jews. Acts chapter 2 is about the Holy Spirit being dumped out on the Jews and they speak in tongues. But then it says, you're not only going to go to Jerusalem, but you're going to go to Judea and Samaria. Then you get to Acts chapter 8, and the Samaritans are reached with the gospel. And there's this weird manifestation of the Holy Spirit, similar to here. Linking the Samaritans to Pentecost in Acts 2. It's like a little Pentecost for the Samaritans. And then you get to Acts chapter 10. And the Gentiles come to faith because the gospel goes to them. They're all filled with the Spirit, and they do some stuff like here, right? Showing again the link between the Gentiles and Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's proving something in that instant. But then there was this one last outsider group, which is their disciples of John. Not all of them can kind of embrace Jesus yet. They're like on the outside. And in Acts 19, you see again, there's the unity. The Spirit is poured out in a very special time, in a very special place, for a very special, special purpose. It's not meant to be all the time in this way. But it's, man, they are inclusive. They are a part of it. And so they come to faith. They're baptized in Christ. They receive the Holy Spirit. And Paul has now a core group. He's got like this planting team for the church of Ephesus. 
And how big is this advanced force element? Acts 19.7, there were about 12 men in all. I'm like, hey, I know another dude that started with 12 guys and they changed the world. So that's not a bad number. Right? You might look and go, well, how, how, do, you, how do you change a city of 250,000 with 12 men? And I go back to what Scott preached on last week. If you have 12 people absolutely filled with the Spirit, absolutely sold out for Christ, absolutely certain that this will change the world, and they are burning on fire for the gospel, you can tackle any size city. You can. Right? And they do. They're ready to go. They're ready to, to get to the business of what the gospel is all about. They want to see the church on the move. And so they are filled up, they're fired up, they're ready to go, and they're ready to take on a city. And so after reaching these 12 people, Paul goes to the next place where he thinks, you know what, there might be some ripe fruit. There might be some opportunity. Verse 8 says, and he entered the synagogue for three months, and he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. I love this. First you see his approach. Right? Reasoning and persuading. Right? He's just, he's, just, he's just preaching. He's just preaching. Right? He's just saying, saying, here's what God did in my life, and here's what God says, and here's who Jesus is. And I don't believe that Paul's whole mission here is to try to win the argument. When it says persuading and reasoning, he's trying to help the Jews understand that this Jesus that they rejected is their Messiah. So he's just like, no, let me help you get this. Let me help you get grace. Do you guys realize you don't have to keep trying to earn God's favor? For God has already shown favor through Christ for those who believe. Like, do you get it? He's like, I want to win you guys over. So he's just has this reasoning and persuading approach, but then his tone is bold. And remember what Scott talked about last week with boldness? It's about clarity. It's about simplicity. It's about the ability to really transfer or transmit the idea. It's not about being pushy, but it's about being passionate. It's not about being surly. It's about being certain. It's not about, hey, you need to change. It's about, look what... God has changed in me. That's what it means to be bold. It just means, man, I am persuaded that this is real. The other thing we see is this content. It's the kingdom of God. God has invaded the world. God is on the move. God is flexing. God is reclaiming. He's taking back that which was forsaken in Genesis chapter 3. Right? And so with that, a whole new identity, a whole new ideology, a whole new way of seeing the world, how you see your enemies and how you see money and how you see life and how you see strength, how you see power, how you see greatness, all of that is being rewritten. So Paul persuades and shares and boldly proclaims, but when some of them became stubborn and continued in unbelief, they began to speak evil of the way before the congregation. So he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. I told you, when you live openly for Christ, there is clash. So he goes into the synagogue and instantly there is clash. Right? We want works. We don't want grace. We want to do it on our own. We don't want a God that's done it for us. Right? So clash. And Paul's great because he takes the same playbook as Jesus. When, when people would roll in on Jesus and they just wanted to catch him in an argument, you know what Jesus did? Very little. In other words, Jesus didn't sit there and slog it out ideologically for three hours. Right? They'd be like, hey, what do you say about this? And be like, here's my answer. Like, oh, well, what about this? And he's like, ah, I'm going to go get lunch. 
He just didn't stick around to try to slug it out. It was like, hey, man, if you're a rejecter, I'm going to bounce. Now, if there was confusion, no, you stick around. That's what I would tell you. If you're trying to reach out to somebody and they're like, man, I don't get it. I don't understand. I have a problem here, a problem there. But I'm trying to get it. Stick around. Keep sharing. Keep articulating. But, you know, if they're like, you know, what, this is stupid. You're stupid. God's stupid. The Bible's stupid. Bounce. Don't stick around. Don't try to win over the hostile. They've heard. Holy Spirit can do the heavy lifting from there. But they've heard. You need to go find somebody that's willing instead of trying to deal with somebody that is unwilling. That's what Paul does. That's what Jesus did. In fact, Jesus said, hey, man, you go to a city. They don't want it. Dust off. Go to the next city. Remember uh, Scott's thing last week? Uh, Don't just keep camping on this one thing waiting for it to be ripe. Go on to the next one because there's something else out there that is ripe. So Paul leaves. And it says he went instead and he was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So he leaves the stubborn synagogue and he goes to a public school run by a dude basically named Tyrannical. That's awesome. All right. But that's what he does. He goes to the school of the tyrannical teacher. And there he begins to preach and proclaim. And I want you to understand, here's now what Paul's day looks like. This is how committed he is. But by the way, Paul's more like all of you out there than he is like me. I, I try to emphasize this any chance I get, because I think sometimes we look at people like Paul or Old Testament dudes or whatever, and we go, oh man, they're nothing like me. They were prophets. That was their job. No, you know what Paul's job is? He's a tent maker. Paul is a dude that owns a small business and every day he has to work in the real world with his business. Right? Nobody's supporting Paul. He was not a financially backed missionary. Alright? He just wasn't. So every day he wakes up at zero dark 30 and starts working on making tents at the local marketplace. And he's going to do that till about 11 in the morning. And then from 11 in the morning till about 3 in the afternoon, 3 to 4, it's like siesta for Ephesus. So everybody takes a break, they take a nap, it's the heat of the day, they all kind of go indoors or hide out under shade. And then at about 4 o'clock they all go back to work and they work till about 9.30 at night in the marketplace, selling things, fixing things, making things, whatever it is. And so here's Paul's day. Zero dark 30, he works till 11. When everybody else is sleeping, he's preaching. He goes to the hall of Tyrannus and says, let me tell you about Jesus, how he changed my life. I used to want to kill people. Now I love people. It was all about me. Now it's all about him. All I want is him and I don't want me. And he preaches that for a long time. He says, we're going to see that in a second. But that's what he does all through the break time. And then after break time, three, four o'clock, it's back to making tents. Right? Back to doing his job. But I also want you to know what what Paul leverages throughout this whole time in the story. He leverages telling people the word of God. Go back to what uh, Scott was talking about last week. I want to keep going back to that because I think it was so good. Right? We go, uh, what is the gospel? It is a message shared. It's where you say, this is what God says. You can't just simply show it and hope they catch it. You can't just simply model values and they go, oh, that must be Jesus died on the cross right there. You have to preach. And, and Paul doesn't roll into the city doing all these miracles or anything. He rolls in preaching, just preaching, constantly preaching, believing the word of God will change people, that the Holy Spirit is up to something. That's what he does. So he preaches and he preaches and he preaches. And this continue, it says in verse 10, for two years. 
Imagine your life six days a week. You get up dark, cold, work. Everybody else is on break time. You're on preaching time. Everybody goes back to work. You go back to work and you do it again. He is committed. And he does it for a long time. This is Paul's longest stay. Paul has never stayed any place as long as Ephesus. He does this for two years. All right? Day in, day out. As he's doing this, that synagogue that rejected him, they are just punishing him all the time. 1 Corinthians 15 says, man, I fought the wild beasts at Ephesus. So he's got these critics that are constantly slamming into him. And he keeps trying to preach as he is fatigued. And after two years, what is the result? It says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So in the end, what had happened? A lot of people heard. Notice what this doesn't say. It doesn't say a lot of people were converted. It doesn't say that. It says a lot of people heard. They had a working knowledge. But it doesn't say, oh man, the church exploded. But Paul's just being faithful. He's just preaching the word. And if anything, what Paul's doing here, it's like he's placing tinder throughout the whole city. For two years, just placing tinder, placing tinder, placing tinder, placing tinder. And he's praying, Holy Spirit, bring the spark. Light this fire. Do something that blows our mind. And how this happens and what is going to ensue is going to come through another clash. And it's going to be a way that that I would not engineer the story. But it's a clash of powers, right? So as Paul is preaching, and as he's planting tinder, there's this weird thing that begins to happen. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. This happens kind of later according to the way it's kind of orchestrated in Greek. So eventually these extraordinary miracles come by the hand of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that have been touched by his skin were carried away to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I look at this and instantly in my mind I go, right? You know, like, like what, what do I do with this? Well, here's what you don't do. Next time you catch a televangelist that says, buy my hanky for $20 and it will heal, don't buy it, all right? That's not this. That's just a dude making money, all right? Here's the things you've got to understand about this. First of all, it says it was extraordinary, which means, ready? Extraordinary, right? So, like, like this is normative? No, this is extraordinary. I think Paul's even sitting there going, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Like, that extraordinary, right? So that's the first thing you've got to get, not ordinary. Second is this. Here's what's so cool. This is what I love about this. Handkerchiefs and aprons, ready? Just Paul's tools of the trade, right? So in other words, here's Paul. On his work time, sweating, wiping off with his handkerchiefs, wearing his apron. The apron would be there so if he would prick his hands or whatever, make intense, he could wipe it off on the apron, wipe off his sweat. These are just tools of Paul's trade. Yet, remember why Paul's there. Paul's not in Ephesus to make money building tents. He's in Ephesus to preach the gospel because the glory of God matters. And God so favors what Paul is doing. God says, I'm going to give an extra measure of grace to Paul when he's working hard and he thinks he's making no kingdom investment. I will use those things for kingdom investment. Right? So Paul's just faithfully working by the sweat of his brow on his work time, and God says, you know what, I'm going to use that. Because Paul wants every part of himself used for the glory of God. God says, I can use even your sweat. I can use your work. I can use your job. I can use that time when you think you're doing nothing. You're doing something. Right? I love that. Because Paul just says, use all of me. Use all of me. The third thing that's going on here is that these miracles 
that are happening by the power of God through the hand of Paul are assaulting the magical climate of Ephesus. Remember, people want to go to Artemis and pop off a bag and get all the magic tricks in the bag. Like, oh, you need to go, you need to get the special stuff and it's consecrated and it's sacred and it's all these special things to get magic. And then, then Paul's like, yeah, I know, I got the sweat hanky that does that. You got to get these special satchels. I've got an apron that's all dirty and covered with blood and it does the same thing. Right? So again, the power of God is unleashed against the occultic miracles or magic of their culture. And the result is it displays the physical advancement of the kingdom. When demons are going, it means the kingdom's coming. Right? So all of that is displayed. So what happens? Well, some other people want to get in on the action. It says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. That is a bad way to open. These were the seven sons of the Jewish high priest Sceva that were doing this. Now, here's the problem. When you use the name of Jesus, but you do not have the power of Jesus, you are looking for problems. And that's these guys. I feel like the next line they should have said is, oh yeah, and don't cross the streams. I'll stomp on the trap. All right? That's probably what should have been said right here. Because again, they're going into this way more with their power than God's power. In fact, they have none of God's power. So they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, even though I don't know him and don't have his power. Says verse 15, an evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you, right? I mean, honestly, it's like, they're like, yeah, we know Jesus because we've known him from the beginning. We used to worship him. In fact, there was this time where all of heaven was unified and nobody revolted. And we knew that Jesus, he was on the throne, but then we rebelled and we still know him because he is after us. So we know him. And we know Paul because he set foot into the city and it's freaking us out. We recognize that guy. We've got wanted posters of that guy throughout Asia Minor. But you seven fools... What is all that about? We have no clue what you're up to. You should not assault darkness when you do not have a flashlight. That's the bottom line, right? Who are you? Then it says, verse 16, And then the man in whom the devil or the evil spirit was in leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Have you ever talked about, oh, we played this team the other day and we beat the pants off of them? Right? You want to know where that hails from? Right here. That's that. These guys go in, right? They're going to use the name of Jesus without the power of Jesus. And what happens in the end, they come out of the house holding their job with one hand, their fruit of the looms in the other. They get beat. They get beat, beat down. Why? Because again, clash. Clash. Man, demons, they hate the name of Jesus. And when there's no power of Jesus, but there's a name of Jesus, they'll fight. They don't dig power, but they'll fight name if there's no power. And so they fight and they clash. So these guys go running out naked, bruised, ashamed. It's bad. In verse 17, it says, And this became known to all the residents in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now I look at this and go, man. That doesn't sound good. Because imagine the headline. Here's the headline. Uh, Name of Jesus used in failed exorcism. In related news, streaker seen all over town. You know, like, like, 
Like, that doesn't seem like good press. You know, the name of Jesus is invoked, and a demon beats up seven dudes. Leaves them beat naked. And yet, that was precisely the spark that lights the tinder that Paul's been stashing all over the city. I mean, this seems like a bizarre failed attempt. I mean, think about it. Paul's been preaching for two years. He's been basically um, being heard by people. And aprons and handkerchiefs have been going every place and people have been healed. But we still haven't seen where anybody has really displayed conversion. But then here the fires of a revival are lit when seven guys basically use the Lord's name in vain and a demon beats them up for it. Isn't that the weirdest deal? It's like, well, why? How does that happen? Verse 17, it says, And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Here's why. In that culture, pretty much you controlled idols. In that culture, you controlled the gods. If you paid the gods the right thing or gave the gods the right gift or you did the right little chant or incantation, the, the gods were supposed to do what you wanted. In essence, you could manipulate the gods. And so these seven guys roll in in the name of Jesus and they think, well, I'm just going to use the name of Jesus like we use the name of any other little incantation. It's going to be like a magic trick and demons are going to go. And then the people realize, oh, no, we know there's power in the name of Jesus because, man, demons have been running every place where Paul's apron shows up. In the name of Jesus, I mean, they, they split. Here, they just kick some dude's butts because it's proof that you cannot tame the name of Jesus. He's independent. He reigns on his own throne. He is his own true God and the one true God. And you can't stop that. That's what they know and see. So when they go, oh, man, that, that's the Jesus Paul's proclaiming. The fires are lit. They're just lit. They just, that's, that's what we get it. Something's going on. God is on the move. This is the God we need. And so they elevate the name of Jesus. Verse 18. It says, Also many of those who now were believers came, and they were confessing and divulging their pagan practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together. Again, this is something only a Holy Spirit can do. Right? When the fires are lit, when the Spirit goes forth, man, people go, I don't want this anymore. We're so concerned about trying to make people obey. You get the fire of the Holy Spirit lit up in a person, and they just want to obey. They just want to seek. They want to do. They want to honor. And that's what these guys do. They're like, we just want to be right with God. And so they're coming and they're bringing all of their stuff. They're saying, we, we, we confess. We, we, we've been wanting God, but we've been wanting our own sin. We want to do what Jesus wants, but we also want to do magic tricks like this. And we know it's not right. We're releasing it. Part of the power of magic is knowing the secrecy of the spell. So now that you're telling everybody, oh, this is a spell. This is how I do it. Yeah, it's a string. No lie. It's a string. I swear. You know, like as soon as you spoil it, it doesn't have power. And so, man, it's almost like once they go down this road, there's no coming back. All right, that's confession. That's transformation. And it's pretty intense. It says, and they burned them all in the sight of all, right? So they brought all these books together, all these magical practices, and they burned them in the sight of all. It says, and they counted the value of them, and they found them to come to 50,000 pieces of silver, millions of dollars. Literally millions of dollars. And this isn't just private collections for some of these people. It's their inventory. For some of these people, they realize to follow Christ means I have no way to make money. 
To follow Christ means the family business is over. It's been seven generations of occultism done today. All the inventory shot. Jesus matters more. I don't want my sin. I want him. So they burn it all. They confess all. And I love this because you know what? This isn't censorship. This isn't saying, hey, give me your magic books. I'm going to burn them. This is people saying, burn it. I don't want it. Right? This isn't censorship. It's worship. That's what they're doing. They're saying, God, take it all. Millions, take it all. Right? So they burned it in the sight of all. And it says, and so, it's like that's the catalyst. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I love that. One preacher rolls into town. Twelve men converted to Christ. Two years of faithful proclamation. Now hundreds say we want that Jesus and we want to let go of our old lives. That is how the church of Ephesus is born. It is born in clash. And when I look at this, in that last verse, they burned all in the sight of all. And they counted the value and it was all of this so that the word of the Lord continued because again, they were so transformed. They go, man, that is the message for us. If we want to see our city claim for Christ, if we want to see a real difference made, this is the template. What changes people? What grows people? What alters a city? I'll tell you what doesn't. What doesn't is words from councils and governors and mayors and legislatures. That doesn't change anybody. Can't really change them. Laws won't. Rules won't. Expectations, that doesn't necessarily change people. If you want to force censorship, legislate morals, you know, that can't change people. That can just force people to hide. But the Word of God... Implanted by the Spirit, that compels people to confess, to divulge, to purge. To say, I let go of all of my idols for the one that can change everything. So how does God change a city? How is God going to change Duval? How is God going to fill up these seats? How is God going to change East Woodenville? How is God going to change the Ridge or Carnation or Monroe or wherever you're from? Because you know where Redemption Church exists? Wherever you live. That's where it exists. And so how is God going to change our cities? He's going to change it when we as his church say, you know what? We are empowered to this task. We have the word of God that is alive and living and active and can do more than what I can do on my own. And I'm going to trust God to do that, to change a city. To believe in his power. To believe his promise. To believe his might. And I guarantee if we do that, If we do that, if we believe that, the guarantee is not that every one of these seats is going to be filled. But the guarantee is this, and we'll see it next week. We will see clash. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, we thank you and love you and need you. We look to you as our sufficient God. And as we look over these three weeks at the birth of the church of Ephesus, we see Invasion, clash, invasion, clash, invasion, clash. May we see that the pattern is always the gospel invades and with that the enemy pushes back and it invades and the enemy pushes. May we be faithful though to the word, faithful in the spirit, faithful to your glory and your name. Amen.